Welcome into Rick and Bubba University. Excited about another episode. Bubba, today we'll be talking about the book Secret on the Tarmac. Christopher Sign will be our guest, and, and we'll, we'll jump in. We talked about this back when it happened. Oh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. It happened, but now we're going to talk to a journalist that, uh, that has a, a pretty clear uh, idea of what took place that day based on a source that was there. We'll unpack that with him. But first, one of the things I do want to uh, tell you and encourage you to do, if you have a, an automobile that has now got outside of the manufacturer's warranty, look, today uh, cars are like computers. I mean, every little thing, I mean, it's like computers on, on, on wheels. They've got the electronically controlled transmissions, the touchscreen displays, dozens of sensors. And we love this, Bubba. We love technology. But guess what technology is? Expensive to fix if and when it breaks. And if you don't have a warranty, then that's going to be mm. on you. That's why we want to point you to the car shield. I'm so thrilled that our older automobiles are under the protection of, of the car shield. Now, these are affordable protection plans that can save you thousands for a covered repair, including computers, GPS, electronics, and more. Now, with Car Shield, you actually are in control. You're behind the wheel of your plan. Car Shield, uh, you know, can customize monthly plans, rates as low as $99 a month, and you get to choose your favorite mechanic. As long as the mechanic is ASC certified, you choose the, or the dealership, either one, and then Car Shield works directly with them and takes care of everything. And then Bubba, while the car is being repaired by Car Shield, dealing directly with the mechanic of your choice. You get a rental car at no extra charge, and and even when you're you know not having issues, you have twenty four seven roadside assistance under the Car Shield again at no extra charge. They have helped over one million customers. So drive with confidence, knowing you've got coverage from America's number one auto protection provider with rates as low as ninety nine dollars a month. You have nothing to lose. So get covered by Car Shield today. Call them eight hundred car six thousand. You do want to mention the code Rick Bubba. Or visit carshield.com, use the code Rick Bubba to save 10%. That's carshield.com, the code Rick Bubba, a deductible may apply. All right, so Christopher Sign is here. Welcome, Christopher, to Rick Thank and Bubba University. I knew I was in the right spot in the parking garage. You know why? Because there's a sedan, a four door sedan downstairs in the parking garage that was towing a hot dog cart. That's it. And I said, this That's is the us. place. Wait this, a minute. That is, ain't our car. we well, got to find out not, who's that is. Nobody's taking ours away. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it, it's great to be with you. Christopher Sign, of course, uh, you're, you're the pride of Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas. Yes, sir. And uh, you uh, you played football at the University of Alabama mm-hmm. uh, under Gene Stallings and then Mike DeBose there at the end, right? Right. right. And uh, and you, you you found your way, though, to to Alabama in, in, a, in a strange twist of, of circumstances that uh, that in a way are kind of tied to the book and, and, and what took place. So kind of kind of give everybody the brief story of, of Christopher Sign and how you ended up in our state and kind of the, the road you've been on. So recruited out of high school to play football by Gene Stallings, you know, when Coach Stallings comes and sits in your living room, you're pretty much sold at that point, yeah, you yeah, know. Yeah. <laughs> he pulled up in a Cadillac. I'll never forget uh, uh, Cedric Burns, if you're familiar with Cedric Burns. on this, He's always on the sidelines every single uh, game. But Cedric pulls up. Coach Stallings gets out, shakes my hand. Next thing you know, he and my dad are getting a stance in the living room. They're talking old <laughs> football. It wasn't even like I was there. Yeah. And I'm just watching these these two guys talk football. So here I am in the middle of this. I commit to Alabama. I come here and, you know, I'm second string my entire career. And that's just how things go. Yeah. Uh, lettered uh, under Coach Stallings and one under Dubose. And uh, upon graduation, I had to figure out what I was going to do. Now, when I was playing at Alabama, I was a theater major. You know, I thought I was going to be a man of the theater and – 
you know, that you're I was the gonna, only second person I've ever heard, and the other's Rick's son that yeah. played football was a theater. Really, yeah, yeah. Yeah, my son played at Auburn. Sorry, see, uh, real, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, and and so yeah, he is. And still, he's still acting today. So. Oh, I love it. Yeah. That's great. I'm jealous. Yeah. Um, so I started leaving practice early to go to theater class, and Coach Stallings called me in his office. And says, "Hey, man." You're changing your major. I said, uh, uh, sorry. And he says, I brought you to Alabama to play football and get an education, not learn how to act. You're changing your major. <laughs> and I said, uh, yes, sir, coach. What do you want me to do? You're going to be a journalist. You ask too many questions. Yes, sir. And lo and behold, next thing you know. Uh, he coached you up. Are you yeah. saying Gene Stallings <laughs> changed your major? He did. <laughs> he did. I didn't have a choice. I said, okay, coach, you know, I wasn't going to talk back to coach, and I still don't talk back to coach, and I speak with him on the phone. Um, so I became a journalist, and uh, a journalism major, then graduated from the University of Alabama, and I went for a job interview in Montgomery at one station. I botched it, and boy, did I botch it big time. I didn't know what I was doing. So on the drive back, I uh, passed by TV station. It was the ABC affiliate, and I said, I'm going to walk in. Well, I walked in, and a guy named Norman Lumpkin was the news director there. Norman Lumpkin was the first black reporter in the state of Alabama, the first black anchor in the state of Alabama, and the first black news director in Alabama. He was a, uh, he was a reporter in the 1960s, and, um, you know, so he was a trailblazer. So he walks out. He says, you think you want a job here? And I said, yes, sir. So we get to talk, and he says, let me see your references. My references were Mike Dubos, Gene Stallings, and Andrew Sorensen, who was the, <laughs> the school yeah, president, the president at the time. That's all I had. <laughs> he didn't believe me. So he called Mike Dubos, and Coach Dubos picked up the phone. He took the call, and next thing you know, I got the job. So I, I detail some of that in the book. And uh, make a long story short, I go from Montgomery to Midland, Odessa, Texas, then I come back here to uh, ABC 3340. I was in the Tuscaloosa Bureau. And right. from 2000-2005, I'm in, uh, working for 3340. Then I head out to Phoenix, and I was in Phoenix for 13 years. See, I remember you as a mm-hmm. reporter here, and then you just disappeared, which a lot of them do. They right. change jobs. Absolutely. And then you just showed back up when a legend anchor had retired. Yes. And they had put you. I thought, wow, they went with a young guy. He went out and made a name for himself and they brought him back. My friend Dave Baird uh, retired and he's a good man. Still yeah. still talk to him. No. And um, and so my current news director called me and then I speak with James Spann and James is like, hey man, you got to come back. And you know, when I talk to James, I trust James dearly yeah. with all my yeah. heart. And um, and so here I am. He's very convincing too. I mean, when he tells you to take cover, you take cover. Oh, exactly. So when that I guy mean, tells you to come work, you go, yeah. you go to work. Yeah, right? it's like James could sell cars. He's like, that's not an oil leak. That's sweat from the horses under the hood. You know, it's like uh, that's he he could do it all. You know, he, he's selling ice to an Eskimo. Oh no, that. So secret on the tarmac. Right. Above and I are just casually, you know, doing our little show, and you see all the different TVs in this studio. Sure. And we look up, and you're on Fox News. And um, and I, I do a double take right. because we watch your local TV station in here some, and I, I'm like, wait a minute, that's that's the wrong channel. And I go, Rick, yeah. Christopher's on the wrong wrong monitor up <laughs> yeah. there. What's he doing? So so we all remember this meeting, and right. I'm putting quotes around it, with Bill Clinton, and, and we remember the tarmac story. And, of course, we're on the air saying this is total hogwash. Mm-hmm. I mean, Because it was a while back. Yeah, when was it, it, it 16? Yeah. 2016, 20, June. 2016. And, 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 you know, when Loretta Lynch, and they'd say they talk about grandkids, and there was nothing to be concerned about. And, 
And, you know, we knew the whole thing was going on. Uh, but on but the, there was a problem at that yeah, time right, because yeah. we were Hillary was being investigated that was by the FBI yeah. for mishandling classified information are now known as the uh, the email server scandal. Not, not to mention Benghazi. Right. And, right. And, and the Benghazi scandal is what I was extremely focused on. I wasn't even thinking emails when I got the tip. Yeah, so how, how what were you doing? How did you get involved in this as a journalist? Just, just hey, I'm trying to get to the bottom of the mm-hmm. story? So I, I was a uh, morning anchor in yeah. Phoenix, and I was actually leaving for the day. Phone rings. It's a trusted source. Uh, I, I don't identify him. I never will, but we go by the name Jay mm-hmm. is what I call him in the book, and I detail what Jay provided. And when Jay calls, if Jay, Jay's the type of guy, if he says it's going to the sky is going to be purple tomorrow, I'm going on air with it. He's right. a guy I trust with my livelihood and my life mm-hmm. and, and anything and everything in between. And he told me, he says, you're not going to believe this. There was just a meeting between Bill Clinton and Loretta Lynch on her plane on the tarmac um, at the executive terminal at Sky Harbor. And I said, what? I said, we didn't even know Bill Clinton's in town. And that's significant because those of us in the media, there, there's we're typically notified when a former president sure. is in town. Because, you know, in this case, the Democratic Party, the local party, would want to, you know, kind of thump their chest and say, we got the former president in town. Yeah, they will fundraiser. The absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and in some cases, there, there's what's called a, a temporary flight restriction where our right. news chopper would not be a, allowed to fly overhead. None of that took place. Nobody knew Bill Clinton was in town. I said, are you sure? And so I went back into work. And the minute I walked into work, one of my co-anchors said, uh-oh. And I popped out uh, an energy drink, popped it, and he says, uh-oh, what's going on? <laughs> and so I started, uh, started doing the research. We started uh, checking things out, and, and, and he was spot on. And it just so happened Loretta Lynch was about to have a news conference, and we had a reporter assigned to cover that news conference. It was uh, part of her community policing tour. This was her first stop on that, you know, trying to, to uh, get the public and the police to start working to, uh, together a little bit better and, and smooth out some wrinkles there. And... Um, Next thing you know, she was tipped off that I found out. Mm. And um, I lay that out in the book as to how she was tipped off. And they start delaying the news conference and delaying it and delaying it and delaying it. And the thing is, what we did, our reporter there, we had our reporter prepared. We decided we're not going to ask Loretta Lynch if the meeting took place. We're going to ask her what was discussed. And an effort. Foregone conclusion. We yes, know you had the meeting. Exactly. Exactly. We, we didn't want to what's called throw a grenade in there. Uh, but in this, it was just going to be, you know, a, a spear right there saying, we know it happened. Tell us what was discussed. And the thing is, they kept uh, delaying it. And that's where we, it leads us into what's called the talking points memo. And they designed and devised an entire plan around the talking points. So here we have the attorney general. Hillary Clinton is under investigation for multiple things. Right. And and all of a sudden, you know, like you being a theater major, almost like you, you're now writing, you know, the script for everybody. <laughs> Absolutely. Strangely, uh, you know, we, we, we have the FBI come out and say, well, uh, there's, there's some things going on here. It doesn't look good and all this. But we don't think there's anything here that anybody would prosecute anybody over and – that yes. was James Comey. James Comey. Which was very rare yeah. and, to do that. And then you hear the, first of all, talk about how rare that is. And then he suddenly lets us know that the very person that Bill Clinton was just, you know, hanging out talking about grandkids, mm-hmm. uh, the, the very person, the attorney general, will ultimately make the call. And Bill Clinton is meeting with the person that's going to make the call on mm-hmm. what's going to happen to Hillary Clinton. Right. 
Now, now I don't have to know a whole lot to know that sounds terribly, terribly fishy. Well, the, it was a planned meeting, right. and I detail that in the book, and I explain how it was a planned meeting. And and to be clear, this is about journalism, and I'm not going to preach big J and, and yay, yay, journalism, but that's what this is about. It's about facts, and it's then to let everybody decide the conclusion that they have. But what I've lined out, uh, laid out here are the discrepancies throughout, how it was planned, how he orchestrated this. Uh, you know, what you may not know is Loretta Lynch landed, okay? Bill Clinton was running late, not just late, but oddly late. We're talking significantly late. His security team didn't know what was going on. So he pulls up to his plane, which is parked in the executive terminal of uh, Phoenix Sky Harbor Airport. It is a secure area. There are cameras. There are cops. There are gates. There, you're not getting in, okay? No, nobody like you or I are going to get anywhere near it. Well, he pulls up and he sits in the car. And at that point, Loretta Lynch's private plane is pulling up. It's, uh, it's already landed. It's taxiing into position. It stops. He's in the car. Most of her staff gets off. Now, that's somewhat orchestrated because, uh, you know, a lot of them know uh, security-wise who gets off first, who gets off in the middle, who gets off last. It's all, it's all planned and yeah, orchestrated. orchestrated yeah. Yes, absolutely, for security reasons. So most of her staff gets off. He gets out of the, his uh, car. He walks over to Loretta Lynch's plane. And at this point, the vast majority of FBI and Secret Service who are there, because she's traveling with FBI, he's traveling with Secret Service, and then you have local and state police officers, they're wondering, what the heck are we supposed to do? Mm-hmm. There's no protocol on the books. It's not planned. No, there's no protocol on the books on how to deal with a former president of the United States meeting with a current attorney general right. of the United States. On a tarmac. Yes. Unannounced. So these... <laughs> These uh, men and women in uniform are trying to figure out what to do while they are saying, uh, uh, you know, running in circles. Bill Clinton walks up the air stairs and the minute he walks up the air stairs and gets on her plane, uh, the FBI agent who is in charge of her security then positions positions himself right at the entrance of the plane. Mm-hmm. Nobody's allowed on that plane. They're on there by themselves. They are now by themselves with Loretta Lynch's husband, who has never been questioned to this day. Loretta Lynch and her husband were about to exit the plane. Her head of security says, ma'am, the former president of the United States, Bill Clinton, would like a moment with you. And before she had even a moment to answer, she turns around and he's on board. He's on the plane. So he testified that he was invited on board. He told the Office of Inspector General who was investigating mm-hmm. the entire presidential election, he told the Office of Inspector General he was invited on board. But guess what? Loretta Lynch says he wasn't invited on board. So there's your first and easiest discrepancy right there. Loretta Lynch is about to get off the plane. She has her bag in hand. Her bag is now sitting seated on a chair in the airplane. Bill Clinton grabs the bag. He sets it on the floor. He takes a seat. Now... Bill Clinton, the former president of the United States, is sitting on her plane looking up at Loretta Lynch and her husband. So now, naturally, what are Loretta Lynch and her husband going to do? They're going to sit down. They're going to have a seat. And the meeting is underway. Meanwhile, her, his wife is being investigated right, uh, for all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. And he's on the plane with the attorney general, forcing himself on them, basically. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and he gets his meeting. Right, for 20 minutes. And then afterwards, it was told that it was just a happenstance meeting. They talked about grandkids. And, and golf. 
golf and you know all that kind of good stuff. Now, what you you mentioned the talking points, so I, I I suppose you guys asked Loretta Lynch when you finally got the press conference. Oh yeah, and so she, so what was this conversation about? So she said it was about golf, grandkids, Brexit. Uh, you know, nothing nothing of significance is how she laid it out. But she she provided a very long answer. And as a journalist, when somebody keeps going and going and going, it's like, mm, you know, because there's a happy medium. There's a no comment, which she knew that she couldn't say, I have no comment on that because that would be something else. But then laid it out there and it was orchestrated. I mean, it was like we were shocked. I was shocked that she acknowledged it and she just went with it. I was like, wow, man, she she owned it and. And went with it, and then I learned about the Talking Points memo. Because what's happened between now and then, and people have asked me, why now? Why are you releasing yeah. this book now? Right. Because I have been slowly gathering information over the past couple of years. And so a lot of this information hasn't ever come out because I have been gathering and just sitting off on the sidelines watching it all unfold and waiting for, you know, whether it's people to trip up or for documents to drop. And in uh, one particular case, for... A source to drop me um, the the uh, behind the scene the behind closed doors uh, testimony. Loretta Lynch provided a House Oversight Committee in December of eighteen. So she was questioned about all. She this, was under oath it, privately. But the problem is, it was with a House Oversight Committee in December of eighteen. She was questioned by the Office of Inspector General, who was investigating this, and they never compared mm-hmm. the apples to apples here. And that's where you have so many discrepancies, even the timing. She changed the narrative from 20 minutes that she told the Office of Inspector General, and I've reported on as well through my source, Jay, that it was a 20-minute meeting. She told the House Oversight Committee, no, it was more like 10 minutes, maybe even eight minutes. And then she told the House Oversight Committee this was a meeting about um, that, that Bill Clinton flattered her. She also testified that Bill Clinton brought up Eric Holder that Bill Clinton talked about the job that she's doing at justice. That was her quote, at justice. Um, well, he's known to be flattering to yeah, females. Yeah, yeah, so that's yeah, not yeah. completely well, Let's be honest. Era. Bill Clinton is a very bright man. He's no <laughs> dummy, you know? Um, you don't get in the positions that he's been in for, for <laughs> no, be the president of the United States for being dumb. <laughs> or you don't get out of the things he's been in for well, being dumb. But Ooh. anyway, but, but yeah, I understand what you're saying. But it right. is funny anytime a female says, Bill Clinton flattered me. We all go, yeah, I'm yeah, sure he right. did. That's even though list, he, yeah. even though your husband was there, uh, he doesn't seem to care. But but anyway, that 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 that's another point. But but I, yeah, that's the first thing I thought of is all right. So yeah, Chris has got this. It's over. Trump won. They, yes. they, they, Hillary did not get. It, so why does this matter? It, it, it matters because we as as Americans have have been saying for quite some time. Journalism is dead. Right. Uh, there, there's no such thing as there was a time in this country you didn't even know who journalists went into a booth and voted for. Correct. But if they would go out and say there are facts here and we will bring down and we will inform the American people mm-hmm. if, it, if they need to know that somebody is doing something that is outside of what we deem appropriate or legal right. uh, as your government. But now it seems to it's turned into we only go after anything that's politically expedient for the party we support. Right. And, 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 and you're saying here's another example of this, and you're trying to show this 
more than anything, what I gather from it is, yes. you know, this this was this was a cover up. This was this 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 was not journalism. Right. We have to hold the powerful accountable. People rely on journalism, and journalism is not dead. I advocate for local journalism. I I do because. I live in this community, I love this community, and I wake up every day in this community, whereas uh, some of the nationals, if something happens here, they parachute in, they tell a story, and then they leave. Mm -hmm. That's why I advocate for uh, local journalism, and when I was in Phoenix, this was a local story that went national, and it's near and dear to me, and I have continued to follow it, and we have to hold the powerful accountable. I think it's a very exciting time right now to be a journalist, because people hold me accountable. And if I'm ever questioned on a story I do, that's okay. It's the journalists who get mad when they're questioned that should raise a red flag, right. in my opinion. Um, because you have to remain objective. And in this case, I'm not taking sides. I am pointing out the discrepancies, the problems, explaining what happened, explaining how it impacted my family, and ultimately, what led me right back here to Alabama? Well, we want to talk about that, yeah, what happened after this. But you make a good point. And I thought we had Reese Davis on one of our podcasts oh, not yeah, too long ago. And he was he was talking about sports. Mm -hmm. And we were talking to him about, you know, being a homer for a team or, you know, if you're in the position he's in. Mm -hmm. And he said that, you know, everybody has a bias. The problem is, or what they strive to do, is just be fair in their reporting. They're not even going to deny bias mm -hmm. or, or fandom, but just be – and he said what ESPN wants is for them to be fair in their reporting of the story. Absolutely. And I think the same thing would be in, uh, you know, in politics or whatever we cover, but it, it sometimes it just seems like we, we have people on one side and we have people on the other, and they're only, like Rick said, going to give you – stories that way we've kind of lost our middle ground i agree we're not allowed to disagree anymore what happened to me listening to your opinion and saying okay i respect your opinion that's not happening anymore <laughs> good god that was flushed down the toilet sometime i don't know why or when that happened but yeah um it, it has happened but we have to be able to disagree but we have to be able to listen to each other and that's what you know this book is it's it's a listen to what happened and and understand what happened in that moment that you just can't let things go and forget about it, you know? Uh, you know you, you, we can't dwell in the past, but we have to understand the past to understand the future. Learn from it. You right. know, in a strange way, I wonder, and I, I'm not saying this, but I'm just asking, could this be part of it? We, we clearly have a political correctness that's in our public arena now. Mm -hmm. There's things you say and can't say. Sure. And uh, that used to not be that way. I just wonder if it doesn't affect the way that we try to do things because, like you said, I can't disagree or we can't disagree with each other because we don't want to say the wrong thing or we don't want to disagree with uh, some group that has an agenda or whatever, whatever. Right. So instead of engaging and saying, ah, oh, Chris, you're full of it, I don't believe you, this is what I believe, like we used to, Right. we go to our little corners where we're safe, and then we say what we want to say. Yes. And then so we end up with Team A and Team B as opposed to all of us out in the middle presenting ideas, disagreeing, and then going on to the next story mm -hmm. and let people decide. Right, let's take this story, your book, for example, what Bubba's saying. What's wrong? Whatever happened to all of us you know, saying, this is way I, what I think is best for the country politically, well, this is what I think is best for the country politically, but taking a story like this, and just sitting down and say, all right, let's look at the facts of this. We, we've got Comey and his comment, his press mm -hmm. conference. That's kind of weird. Uh, we've got 
a, fir, uh, a former first lady who looks like she's in a lot of trouble. We've got her husband who shows up on the tarmac to talk to the attorney general who's ultimately going to decide whether his mm-hmm. wife's going to be investigated or not. Can we not all drop our political bias and just sit back and say, journalist, mm-hmm. will you tell me what you found out's going on here, and then I'll decide right. as an American whether I think this uh, this looks fishy or not. It doesn't mean that I can never vote for my political party again. It, it never means that I've got to change my political views. What are the facts of this situation? And and as a citizen of this country, do I like this kind of stuff and think it's important, or I don't? Right. One example, the talking points. People need to understand why why did Loretta Lynch, why did her entire staff, and, and to be clear, her staff did their job in protecting her. And also to be clear, Loretta Lynch had no idea this meeting was about to occur. She was surprised and, and she did not know, okay? Uh, but one simple example of what you're describing, the talking points and the people who were involved in the talking points. James Comey, the leader of the FBI, he had a copy of the talking points right after the meeting happened, right after they found out I had been tipped off and they started the talking points memo in a series of emails. And I have copies of the emails, but they're all blacked out. They might as well be blank pages, to be honest Mm. with you. But I can see who they went to, and James Comey is on that list that was going back and forth, and he received a copy of the talking points. So why devise talking points if it was such, you know, an innocent meeting? You don't need them. Right. And these are the types of things that have transpired over the, the past couple of years that have been, you know, hidden behind uh, behind closed doors up until now. And that's what I'm trying to reveal in the book that I did not forget, nor should our country forget of what took place and that this is what happened. And you can draw your conclusions. Are you concerned? First of all, tell us about the impact on your family. Mm-hmm. And are you concerned that the book's going to bring some of that back? So first of all, tell us what happened. Uh, after I broke the story, the, my, I was, had death threats. Um, they were significant death threats. Uh, had my credit cards hacked. You know, my, my wow. life was, was put on hold. Um, Did you catch grief from your, your bosses at the station? No. They were, they, were, they were supportive of your journalistic efforts 100%. Yes. There was not a single bias either way in our newsroom, and I detail that in the book about how proud I was that nobody ever said, don't do the story. They only said, make sure it is spot on right because you can't put that toothpaste back in. Right. And I had the full support. But next thing you know, I had a cop at my house. Um, and, and these are friends now, these police officers. We would take photos of my boys inside the police car in front of my house. And he'd say, hey, make sure you post that on social media. Therefore, the people who are threatening you can see that. You know, you have security here. We're here, here yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So um, we had uh, phones, cell phones in each one of their rooms because a lot of people don't know your old cell phones that you don't use that are in, you know, your, mm-hmm. your, your junk drawer in the kitchen. You can still power them up and call 911. They still work for 911. So we had those in each rooms. We had, uh, we have code words. We still have code words today that if I say a series of words, my boys know exactly what to do, how to react, where to go, uh, things like that. So... Um, the death threats were significant and, um, and my wife and I had to figure out what to do. And amid all of this, uh, I get a call in the newsroom and, uh, at this point I still was taking calls and it was coach Stallings (laughs) and he he says, Hey man, are you okay? And I said, well, coach, it's a little odd. He says, well, I'm worried about you. 
And I said, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's an interesting time coaching. Keep in mind, I, I was not a big-name player. You know, I wasn't, you know, the Sean Alexanders of my era or, you know, Jay Barkers, any of that kind of stuff. I was no big-name player. But here's Coach Stallings calling and checking on mm-hmm. a guy who was his backup player his entire career. Um, so anyway, you know, time passes and now I'm not taking any calls. I have it completely locked down. I'm not talking, even some of my friends, I stopped doing interviews because I was worried about people following me, everything. And, uh, phone rings again. I said, no, I'm not taking calls. I'm not taking calls. And he said, you need to take this. I said, I'm not taking calls. Fine. Person on the other end says, Christopher. I said, yes. With a question mark. I don't know if you know who I am. But I played football at Alabama, too. My name is Leroy Jordan. And I was like, uh, yeah. yeah, we know who yeah. you are. Yes, sir, Mr. Jordan. I, I know exactly who you are. Right. And he says, well, um, you know, if you need uh, anything, I'm here for you. And you come stay at my house in Dallas. And uh, your Alabama family is going to protect you. And we have your back. And it was it was a super kind gesture from a man I had never met. And it just showed kind of the the bond. And this is not anything against Auburn or Georgia or anything. It, uh, I'm just trying to explain that there's there's a bond yeah, team, a uh, team yeah, bond sure, here. Yeah. Um, and, and it was amazing. And then amid some of the death threats, one of my closest friends, he's a catfish farmer in West Alabama. And he told one person who threatened me, he says, listen, I'm in Greene County, Alabama. I've got dump trucks and guns. Let me know where you want to meet. Wow. <laughs> that guy didn't respond. Yeah. I was about to say, you're crossing yes. the wrong. They, you got ties to Alabama, then you don't know who you're messing with. I'm telling you. Yeah. And my, my friends, my teammates, they came out of the woodwork. They weren't having it. And, you know, it, I got emotional at the time because, you know, when, when you're down like that and you don't know who to trust and what's going on and you have – People, you find out who your real friends are, and a lot of my real friends were right here in this state. Christopher, let me ask you this: When you were getting these threats, and you said some of them you considered serious, correct? Were those people who were just Clinton fans, and they thought you were trying to harm the Clinton image? Uh, were I mean, how high up did that go? Do you think any of them were, um, you know, any of them sicked on you by by parties that would be damaged in this book? Potentially, but most importantly and most significantly, they thought that I was aiming to sway the election, that I was in, attempting and trying to impact the election. Um, and I said, no, don't be mad at me. Be mad at right. the people who took part in the meeting. And that's what was not happening. Right. The people weren't mad. Mm-hmm. The people coming after me, they weren't mad about the meeting. They were mad that I exposed it. That was so that's what was so mind blowing and so unusual for me. Um, but you know, everybody has, has an opinion. Everybody has a right to think what they want. And and I've been criticized. I know you guys have been criticized uh, and and that's okay. (laughs) I'll accept it. But when they start going after my family, game over. No, no, that's not cool. Well, it's just, it's just a strange thing because Comey in one way hurt Hillary Mm -hmm. and in another way he helped her. And I don't know, it does bring up an interesting thing when you're in a uh, political election and you have someone who is accused of of a criminal activity, how you investigate them, how you handle it. I mean, if he sits on information, he's obviously helping her out. If he goes public with information, it looks like he's hurting her on that. It's hard just to do your job and not influence. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it really does get complicated. What, and what if my source, Jay, didn't tip me off? We wouldn't know. Right. Would any of the law enforcement had 
uh, filed a, a report, for lack of a better term, saying that this happened? I don't know. But nobody would have known. James Comey, you know, wouldn't have known. James Comey said that the reason he held that news conference was that he felt he had to get out in front of the situation because of the tarmac meeting. And he thought that the image of the tarmac meeting was tarnishing the investigation. And that was the tipping point that led him to have that news conference. He said that. Um, and and I, think imagine, that, I think that's a, a fair assessment. Probably so. Yeah. And yeah. Except for the fact that then you're going <laughs> to give power to the person who had the meeting to make the decision. That, 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 I mean, it's, well, it was kind of a, yeah. you know, she was saying, if and correct me if I'm wrong, Chris, if I'm trying to remember, I think she came out publicly and said, I'm going to go with whatever the FBI recommends. Correct. She was going to go with the recommendation. And then he comes out and, and says, we're not going to prosecute this because there's not enough evidence to get a jury to go along mm-hmm. with us. Um, but still, that was strange. The FBI usually reports to the Department of Justice. Correct. Then they make the announcement they're like the district attorney right. on the local level. They make the decision whether to prosecute or not, not the head police officer right. who's gathering information. And the White House was briefed, by the way, on all of these steps from the tarmac meeting. And my sources tell me that President Obama did not think that the tarmac meeting was something that they needed to get involved with at the time. And once that roller coaster started started going downhill and it started gaining more speed mm-hmm. and more momentum— they he then was briefed on it. And I don't know if he was handed the talking points, you know, to make sure everybody was on the same page and to make sure they didn't, you know, go off script here or if he was verbally briefed on the talking points. But I know that he was briefed in some form or fashion. And ultimately, President Obama decided to remain back on this and, and let it uh, take its own course. Well, I, I know when Comey said they wasn't going to investigate. A lot of people on the right were going, well, sure, this is a whitewash deal. Mm-hmm. Then he turns around, what, two weeks later? Yeah, about and two says, weeks. says, we're opening it back up. Yes. And then then everybody on the left went nuts. Yeah, what right. was that all about? <laughs> I, I, I don't know if it was buyer's remorse or what. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I don't know, you know, because even it, it's, for me, looking at it, I'm not sure which way to look at it for James Comey, because sorting through fact and fiction, the fact is, he had the talking points, mm-hmm. and fact is, he knew the meeting took place. And the other fact is, in his book, he talks about it was you know wide open and there was no impropriety because it was this big public tarmac, and I detail that specifically in the book. Whereas, no, he's completely wrong. This is a secure area yeah, of the airport. Need, that part is important in, mm-hmm. in the book. You need to re- that again. You know, like you do as a journalist, do I see something here that I know for a fact? was not truthful. Mm-hmm. Yes. Exactly. He says this was open and public, but I know that isn't correct because it's not. Correct. So then that's the first time you do a little flag says, okay, well, that's not true. Right. I know that's not true. Because you're then, saying, you're then saying why, this. Then you have to ask the question, why did they say that? Why did they say well, that? Did they have bad information or are they trying to could have throw been us mistaken. off the trail? So could, could have been mistaken. I, I mean, certainly that's a possibility. He, he may but, have been briefed, and, and it was and it was bad information. But I I literally uh, cite word for word what he wrote in his book, an entire paragraph that is it's just not correct. Christopher, let me ask you this now because it's tying into what we're seeing now. We and we talked about this a little bit earlier. Um, the the Justice Department is under the executive branch, or and that would be the president. Um, but they are the top law officer in the country. But how do you handle that when they're investigating the president? Uh, it, it gets very complicated. And some people think that the Department of Justice should be absolutely independent of the president. 
Some people don't think that's a big deal. Um, and we've seen it both ways in different administrations. I mean, where, where do we – how do we sort that out? And I guess what I'm trying to say, Eric Holder was, was quoted as, I'm in Obama's corner mm-hmm. when they were trying to get things done. Mm-hmm. Um, you've heard Barr being criticized now because it looks like he's doing what the president wants done. Where do we, how do we sort all that out? It's a sticky and it is a tangled web. I'll give you the example as it relates to the book because that's, you know, uh, in the tarmac meeting. Right. And that's kind that, of, that's kind of my expertise yeah. because in this situation, what if Loretta Lynch brought in a special prosecutor or a special investigator? So do you get somebody like a, a Mueller, Robert Mueller, and the next thing you know, people are going to say, um, oh, he's, he's biased. Mm-hmm. And then, or do you get somebody like John Smith from wherever? No matter who you get, there's always going to be a side that says that they are not objective, they're not impartial. Mm-hmm. And that is because situ- nobody is completely. Not, not at that level, because there's always alliances. You either uh, have an alliance with uh, the White House, you have an alliance with a potential future president because mm-hmm. you're trying to set yourself up for a future job. Right. Um, and that is a situation that I think that uh, we as a society a- actually should look at. Who is investigating who and who is biased and who's not and who's objective and who's subjective? It's it is a mess and it needs to be addressed. I think that that's a great point, because in this situation, they probably could have brought in a special prosecutor or special investigator. But who? I don't know. If they're a Democrat, you're playing home team. If they're a Republican, they're out to get you anyway. So how do you how do you ever have, you know, fairness in that? And, And I don't know if you bring in a Supreme Court justice to do that. But then again, who appointed Who them? Who appointed them? <laughs> it is a very— You well, never can get away well, from that. Right. Where are your roots from and who are your friends? But you I know? know what we are all hoping, what, because if, if just what you're trying to do here with the book, the truth doesn't have a political slant. No. The truth is the truth. It's, 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 it's unbiased. It doesn't. But the problem is now we've gotten to the point that says, well, no, no, truth is relative. But it's really not. That, nope. There really is truth about your book. Mm-hmm. There, there is the truth— on what took place on that tarmac, and and I mean, I, it, and, and it doesn't have a political bias. It's just the truth, right? And and even you know, in the book, I lay out within one within one of the chapters discrepancy one, two, three, four, and I put it as plain and as simple as possible without adding any of my thoughts, feelings, concerns, and it's literally, you know, discrepancy four, the time change. Um, you know, that's just one of the examples I put in here. And that time changes when it was 20 minutes and then all of a sudden Loretta Lynch says, no, it was 10, maybe even eight. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the golf conversation. That I, was a I lot that, to cover in eight minutes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I had a little flattery time in I, there. I love that you say that. Think <laughs> about this. If it's eight minutes, golf, grandkids, Brexit, West Virginia coal, <laughs> travels to China, Pulse nightclub shooting, Eric Holder, job flattery and job at justice that's nine topics in eight minutes let's and for easy math let's say nine topics in 10 minutes for loretta lynch who was uh talking to bill clinton and bill clinton meeting loretta lynch's husband for the first time if you and i meet for the first time are we going to cover eight topics in 10 minutes no my brexit is going to take more than eight minutes (laughs) exactly (laughs) grandkids It'll take more than eight minutes. So that's the timing. Right. Or 10 and minutes, is, if you want to give her the 10 minutes. And and I lay it out there, and it's so important for um, my children to, to know, people's children to know, our society to understand what took place here because we cannot have a repeat. We can't 
uh, uh, allow it to happen. And people need to know and people need to feel comfortable in being a whistleblower and being a tipster and tipping off journalists like myself or somebody that you trust to make sure that the powerful are held accountable. You know, one thing in here, I, I titled the discrepancy, Golf is Rough. The topic of golf is rough because guess what? It was 107 degrees in Phoenix at the end of June, and a heart patient is not playing golf, my friend. My dad died of a heart attack, and I'm telling you right now, yeah. a heart patient is not playing golf in Phoenix in 107-degree temperatures, and Bill Clinton did not play golf on that trip while Loretta Lynch uh, told the inspector general that he did play golf. Well, it's, it is important uh, to look at this. Are you concerned they're going to get upset with you again? I don't know. Um you know, it, it makes me feel comfortable that um, that I'm I'm back surrounded by my my former teammates and and uh, and and good people around me that um, that understand that I'm not trying to sway anybody's opinion. I'm not trying to do that. I'm just trying to tell the story and and and, and show the facts. And and um, I I don't know. We're on alert. My family is on alert. Sure. Uh, law enforcement sure. is notified. Have you ever seen the list of people that that tried to make the Clintons look bad? <laughs> no. You don't want to. Uh -uh. <laughs> no, I, I, well, I, it's not a good record. Yeah, I, really I don't know. Uh, yeah, um, yeah, just kind of stay out of that. Yeah. <laughs> I think but we had another one yeah. last week. You dude. might want to ask Jay about it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, you know, just uh, – just, um, I'm just trying to have fun and, and, yeah. and be a dad and, you know. And, That's right. And, and, and you know, I, I've been in a lot of green rooms uh, lately, and i got to tell you, I've never been in a green room like yours where I walk in and there's this big Texas cinnamon roll. There you there. go. And I'm like, that's what I'm talking about. See, that's but but you're not going to get that in New York. You're not going to get the big Texas cinnamon roll offered to you in a green room in New York. You get that right here. This is your home now. Yeah, where we are. Yeah. What about the fact that it bothered you that that you couldn't get really? I mean, we have this this just gargantuan media everywhere, 24/7, and you can't. How how do you have all this information and no one else would cover it? Boy, um, I was asked that actually on on Fox and Friends when I did that interview in New York, and they said, how come other members of the right. media didn't pick up on this. And I, I was honest. I, I don't have an answer. Right. It, it is still kind of bizarre to me that, um, that nobody picked up on it uh, so quickly. It's, it's funny. I actually had a, a radio station here in Birmingham that called me, wanted me to do an interview. And that was one of the first ones that, uh, that request an interview. And it wasn't uncommon for some of the other journalists I, you know, from some of the Washington newspapers and things like that calling. And they were, they were fact-checking their own facts, right. which right. is, I don't mind that at all. And some journalists will do that. They'll call and say, hey, you broke the story. Hey, is this aligning with what you were told? And they were just checking on their own stuff. And I did that. And then um, one of them turned out, in my opinion, to be a fake journalist that was trying to find out who my source what was. What you knew, yeah. And that was really... And where it came from. And that was a, I was, I'll never forget. It was about, um, I was driving to work at one o'clock in the morning because I was morning show anchor and it dawned on me what had just happened. And that is, I spoke to a guy who said he was a journalist for a well-known newspaper and he was chronicling everything. And um, he, he was planning on writing a book just on, on various presidents and this, that, and the other. And he wanted to go through everything. I went through everything with him from, from the very beginning, how it transpired at the end of the conversation, the guy says, well, so when you were talking to your source, did your source, uh, did you hear like a police radio in the oh. background or anything? And I said, no, uh, you know, and then it dawned on me, oh my God, this person is trying to find out and thinks that my source was a cop. Mm. And I thought I have just been duped talking to this person because they have just been, 
listening to every single word mm-hmm. I said, trying to figure out who the source is. And that's what a lot of this became, that people, again, they were angry at me trying to find out the source rather than... Right. Rather than true. Christopher, we're about out of time even for the podcast, but but let me ask you this. Have you had other journalists look at your book and go, you have a fact wrong here, or be critical of your investigating in this? I, before I put it out, I had I had several people look at it, and um, and journalistically, they were just glad that I sourced everything. And, I, you know, I, I lay it out point by point just so that you can understand mm-hmm. where it came from and— so every single source I say from the Office of Inspector General or this is from the House Committee, therefore, it is completely uh, out in the open. And, and yeah, but uh, it was, hey, it's been a ride, man. It's been a ride. And, and well, you did a good job. And, on it, oh, like. I appreciate that. And I'm just glad to be back here. Like I said, we were house hunting in New York at the time when when uh, when Mama called and. And yep. here I am, and me and well, you've done a great are, job. Yeah. We're, we're glad to have you back. Well, Secret on the tarmac, it, it, if for no other reason, get it and document this thing in history, so you see, you know, the inconsistencies. It's important for us to know that, especially going forward as an American public. Secret on the tarmac by Christopher Sign. You can go to ChristopherSign.com, obviously, and you can find out all the information about the book. And the book's also available on Amazon or wherever you get books. Yes, sir. So yes, thanks sir. for taking We're going to have oh you gosh. back, Christopher, and talk about some other topics. I know. We can that's, talk about fun good. stuff. We can talk football and, and family and cooking and grilling. And, yeah. Yeah. and there's some other news stories out yeah, there. Stuff we'll talk I'd like about. to get your insight yeah, on. Yeah, so. we got, well, we can have some fun. Thanks for being with us. we got to smile more. Thank you for having <laughs> me. Yeah. Thanks for you joining us again today on another edition of Rick and Bubba University.